Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. everybody. Welcome to episode 81 of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. I am your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and Mastasters are doing it for themselves this week with a song selected by my fine-feathered co-host, Mark Blankenship. Mark, tell us what we're talking about today. Thank you. I'll discuss it myself, except also <laughs> with you and with the listeners. So not entirely. Uh, so here's the deal, Sarah and friends. Sarah, I don't think I've even told you the reason that I selected this song, but as everyone else with eyes and a heart and ears has been, I have been deeply moved, disturbed, empowered, emboldened, frustrated, all of those things by the avalanche of uh, empowerment that has been coming from professional women across the country of late. And I have watched with so many different feelings as so many powerful men have finally gotten some kind of uh, comeuppance. Well, except not all of them, because of course the president is still the president. And as of this recording, we're two days away from the possible election of a pederast uh, to the Alabama Senate. But in the midst of all of that, of course, I have been wanting to find art that could help me process all of this and in many cases, I have reached for an art of rage and frustration because those things can be incredibly helpful. But then sometimes I want an art of joy that still connects to the thing that's happening in the culture. And then I started thinking about wanting a feminist pop song that I could enjoy while I was on a run or a walk or making food or whatever. And Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves by the Eurythmics featuring Aretha Franklin just struck me as the perfect uh, solution to that particular problem, the perfect jewel in that particular quest, because this is so very much a song about ladies killing it, but it's also a really upbeat, fun number full of a lot of sass. So without further ado, let's get sassy together and roll that clip. So, Sarah, this song peaked at number 18 on the Hot 100. It peaked higher in my heart. I love the sassy, soul-inflected experience. I love the vocals. And I acknowledge that the lyrics are not going to replace Susan Sontag in the canon in terms of their literacy and insight. But the song <laughs> still gives me a lot of joy. Uh, 
but I'm wondering what you think about it. Well, this is one of the great opening riffs of uh, the 80s. Uh, Here is my issue with the song, which I did enjoy revisiting more than I thought I was going to, and I like it better now than I did when it originally came out. But I've got two issues with it. The first is that the song as a sort of melodic experience is similar to, but also inferior to, Missionary Man. Uh, which was released just a few, like 18 months later or something. Yeah, yes. something like that. And that song, um, I mean, again, your Sontag comments apply, but that song hits the spot that you are that you were talking about, that like poppy slash um, rage spot for me, better than this song would tend to. So that's issue number one is that I just, I think the songs are kind of samey. And I think Missionary Mm. Man is better. Mm. The second part is this. um, And this is sort of a like general sense that I remember having at the time, which is going back many moons. And also I'm, I can, you know, be ignorant about things, but there seemed to be a trend at that time of like, um, oh, and for listeners who don't know, this was like 86. That's right. the time that we're talking about, 1986. Um, in theory, I love this pairing, um, particularly of uh, Annie, who was like gender fuck before there was that word, mm-hmm. and uh, Aretha, and these two women and these two voices who were very strong, but in very different ways that should have been complimentary but there was a general trend around that time of pop artists who were more current kind of inviting and honoring uh Ms. Franklin into like the 80s pop conversation which was a wonderful <laughs> instinct but I don't like any of those songs because I don't think Aretha sounds very good in them uh, do you mean also, I knew you were waiting I for me with, uh, not want to have any contact with that song ever again. Everyone's so shouty. Like I, I think that the instincts, like both artistically and emotionally is lovely and beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. But once you, but that was like many times my first introduction to, to Aretha Franklin, except for respect, which I had been hearing get murdered by acapella groups of little white girls for years by that time. So even that song, I was like, I, I can't, this, this song needs to be taken out back and buried at midnight under a full moon. But once you get to know more Aretha sort of in her initial lane of the sixties, uh, then, then you get it. But Based on this work, it was like, she's just not in that good of voice because she's the Mm. guest. And it often felt like they would give her these things to do that was just like, just, you know, hit this note or like do some hollering. And it, it just doesn't quite, it just doesn't quite play for me. Like we are going to be visiting quite a bit with Miss Franklin uh, later this month in some upcoming episodes. So I'm not going to, I'm going to keep some of my powder dry 
for that. But like this song kind of loses me because it's part of that larger. Although where then? Okay. Interesting. I'm interested to know then because this song was released as a single in October of 85, not 86. I'm looking now. But that was the same year that she released the solo hits Freeway of Love and Who Zoom and Who. Nope. (laughs) So do you feel that her solo output from that time is equally, uh, does an equal disservice to her? Or is it just the guesting? Uh, Now that you mention it, I think it's the 80s output. Because I I think maybe... (laughs) And again, I could be talking out of my ass. If it's a day ending in Y, you can probably assume that that's what I'm doing. But I'm not sure that her narrative, like her top narrative presentation is particularly suited to what a lot of 80s pop was about, which was uh, machining and showing off, if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. at all. That like... If I'm hearing you, it's that you don't think the synth-happy, extremely polished sound of 80s pop quite suits a woman whose perhaps vocal peak comes in a less polished, more, not quite acoustic, but just more analog setting. Uh, Yeah, that's, yeah, that's like... 75% of it and then the other 25% is that I think a lot of 80s pop like acted like uh, uh, Paxil on the on the sort of um, highs and lows of a of a song and of a singer that it compressed Hmm. everything into a narrower emotional range so if you compare uh, one of Aretha's 80s hits to uh, Baby I Love You, for example, the strength of that is not necessarily her in like, I don't know, quintessential Aretha TM, like holler mode. It's that she sidles up to it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's more of a, there's more of a progression and more of a range in her volume and in her intensity that I would say most 80s pop did not allow. And her 80s pop in particular didn't show her to her best advantage. She's Aretha. She doesn't need my huh. comments or anyone's help, but you hear me correctly. I I do hear you. I completely disagree with you (laughs) okay 100 percent. i mean i i love 60s era and early 70s era aretha franklin i don't really care for her cover of bridge over troubled water but that's another story yeah but that's another that's a sarah issue and not a aretha issue oh no i think all of these are but anyway continue i anyway but to me 80s pop is um like I feel like that on Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves, actually, you get a really, to my ear, great example of why these songs are so exciting, which is that you get this wall of sharp, melodically pleasing sound, and then you get a vocalist as nimble as Aretha Franklin and as nimble as Annie Lennox sort of jumping around and through the perfect gleaming structure so that I feel like what I get is this perfect blend of precision and play like i get a shiny sports car but i get like 
people inside the sports car hurling mud all over it. I, I, that's a, not a great image, but I just really find it very satisfying. Uh, it is a great image. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I still love it. <laughs> I think there's, I, I would agree with you but like as regards this song. I think that comes the closest to what you're talking about. Well, but I also love the song Freeway of Love because it's also uh, a big re- – it's like an entire song about Aretha Franklin's vagina that became a top five hit. But uh, and, I uh, – And I honor that. Absolutely. Yes, but I mean, listen, it's, it's a matter of taste. And I don't – I understand exactly what you just said and can see how if that were a thing that were bothering me, that would make me not able to quite enjoy this music. But to me – it actually is the thing I think that makes me like it more. There's the, I just love the, the, the lockstep precision of eighties pop music. And then inside of that, you get vocalists who are playing around. I just, and of course I think this has a lot to do with the fact that this is where our narrow, but perhaps significant age difference comes into play because I was raised, this is the music that pop music was to me when I was learning that pop music existed. So I also think that I just, my understanding of what pop music is, is this. And when I was raised, even when I was in the car a lot, my parents were listening to this. So anyway, but whatever, I'm not going well, no, to try to use some sort I think of that's, like, I think that's valid. And I was thinking the same thing. And I was thinking before we started recording today that I wanted to ask you sort of, you know, about your like, how um madeleine this is for you because i think this came at a point in my pop music appreciation where the sort of relentless and often ersatz seeming soul of 80s saxophone had really Mm. begun to tire me in my soul um yes and you may have not felt as uh as like worn out by it in some ways like sometimes that 80 saxophone is like exactly the thing that you want to bring you back to that time and other times you're like please stop bleating i i cannot so yeah i think that you're correct in calling it air sats i mean there's a lot of performance of authenticity like huey lewis for instance perfect example of this yes. like Lewis seems like a totally great guy but I don't know that he – there's just something very um, soul by numbers about his music. Oh, yeah. But now, in 2017, if you were to put on the power of love with the saxotronic sax explosion, I would say, yes, thumbs up. Oh, yeah, but, 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 absolutely. But there's definitely a – um, what's the name of that band in Ghost World? Blues Hammer? <laughs> like, you gotta check out Blues Hammer and Steve Buscemi's character is just sitting there like oh my fucking god kill me and she's like you know just dancing like a marionette it's amazing but yeah well, you know I also feel like I don't to me the precision of the construction the sheen and polish of the music is its authenticity Whereas, like, in American Psycho, he totally, uh, uh, Brett Easton Ellis uses that that shiny precision as a way of indicating that there's nothing underneath. And I totally get that. And if I had been a different person in the 80s or had been a different, if I, perhaps if I had been older and trying to develop an adult consciousness in the 80s, I would agree. But to me, there's just something very 
enthusiasm. I just sort of love the melodic enthusiasm of a lot of these pop songs. But I do want to add, because I th- the real reason I wanted to talk about Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves is something that I'm going to ask you in a second. Because if we're talking about my all-time favorite Eurythmic songs, this is not in the top seven. Because Missionary Man is incredible. I fucking love the song When Tomorrow Comes. Do you know that Eurythmic song? I do not. Or I might. Oh my I god. Just don't, it was, I can't. It was, it was ridiculously never a hit in America, but they put it on their greatest hits anyway, and I am thankful for that every day. It is perfect. Uh, Eurythmics, When Tomorrow Comes, everyone track it down. And obviously, uh, so those two, and then Here Comes the Rain Again, mm-hmm. but probably my number one all-time favorite Eurythmic song is Would I Lie to You, which actually does feel more like the 60s yes. soul R&B sound than any other. It starts with Annie Lennox going, which I just love. But the thing I wanted to ask you about, because I just thought this would be an interesting thought experiment. Uh oh. I'd like us to just, let's just talk about these sort of up with ladies anthems like this uh, We Are Family by Sister Sledge, I Am Woman by Helen Reddy. I mean, are any of them actually good? Do you like any of them? Do you think they serve a purpose? Are they helpful to the cause of the lady? What do you think? Um, well, I think if they're helpful to a lady, then they're helpful to the mm. cause of the lady. Um, I did have a note that, you know, the, these lyrics that are like, you know, at last women are getting their due. That I was just like, oh my God, like, are we still fucking coming out of the kitchen? Like, how long, how long is this hallway out of the kitchen? that we're still trying to get the fuck out of there 30 plus years later. Well, honey, how long is it going to take you to get the biscuits on the table is I think what uh, I'm well, asking. Well, I long use I my work? oven for shoe storage, so might be a minute. <laughs> I, I don't really. I, want my I don't really, but I used to. I used to when I lived in a smaller domicile. Um, I... Oh, you're such a carry. I ew, please. I wish <laughs> that I could survive for a whole year on the Upper East Side uh, and buy shoes on one Vogue article. Uh, um, <laughs> but she got four dollars a word from Candace Bergen. I've, That's I how know. She... Candace was clearly reluctant <laughs> about it too. Um, he, here's the thing, though. I associate many of these songs with gay culture and being an ally of that almost more than I associate huh. them with like feminist and femri. Um, that's not always true. It's not a, it's not even close to an exact overlap, but um, like I will survive. Definitely. I, I feel like I have heard that twice in like a regular bar. And every time I go to a gay bar, so I think that, but, but that's, that is part of what I like about them. Even if they're not necessarily um, like objectively good or like some of them have been mm. a bit overplayed at like 1252 in the morning on the jukebox, but that's okay because I think songs like this create a communal experience and reception of being um of being of just create a communal experience of feeling Mm -hmm. like downtrodden 
but knowing that someone else hears you and also just being able to like, you know, holler along while holding a friend's hand sometimes is, is very powerful and worthwhile. So I think the songs are greater than themselves in, in that way, Mm. like these songs that you're talking about and particularly for, uh, allies, women who are whatever, cis women identified people who are allies of gay people. There's an extra level of, um, communal fellow feeling. That's a little, that's a little dry, but you know what I mean. But I think you've I think you've just touched on one of the reasons that the loudness and the unsubtlety of a song like this appeals to me because yes, for as a gay man, and I think this is true of a lot of gay men, the loud, unsubtle, forceful acknowledgement of feminine strength actually speaks to gay men who have been told that they should feel ashamed of their femininity. Well, you were talking about this and on so Twitter last have, week, were you not? About the girl appellation? Yes, we were because. I was talking about how there was a time in my life when I would feel so ashamed if someone referred to me with a feminine pronoun, and now I'm really fine with it and, in fact, almost prefer it, because there was a time when I had been told that whatever was feminine in me, including my sexual attraction to other men, was something to be ashamed of and made me weak, and now I don't believe that. In fact, I believe quite the opposite. Well, and also that it might make other people uh, uncomfortable. There's that aspect of these songs, too. That's like we're we're yeah. extremely pissed off and sad and frustrated and we're like plugging this into the Casio and we are yelling about it and if you don't like it yeah. you can go fucking stand on the roof. Well and isn't 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 there something also to be remembered which is that Songs like this or any woman who, and I know we've talked about this before on this podcast, but any woman who dares to express anger in pop music or who dares to express female-oriented positivity like she like in this song, those songs are basically going to be torn down by male rock critics and male rock fans, hands down. They're going to be dismissed because it actually is threatening to people. But then for perhaps female listeners or gay listeners or queer listeners or anyone who is just looking for an opportunity to refuse to be ashamed of their femininity, they can be really powerful. I think it's actually, I've read this really great book once about disco and how people actually hated disco less because it was oversaturated in the market eventually and more because it was a representation of the black, the queer and the feminine gaining dominance in the culture. And I think stuff like that is always correct based on not least the fact that i saw the movie call me by your name last night and even in midtown manhattan people were audibly uncomfortable when the two male characters in that movie were romantic with each other so yeah like that's why i feel like even with all of the stuff that's happening now with harassers being uh brought into the light from the darkness i think that that's why songs like this are important because yeah it's it is it is putting strength behind something that necessarily makes other certain types of men uncomfortable and should make them uncomfortable yeah, and should make should make everyone uncomfortable like there's something to be said for being made uncomfortable or um not disoriented that's too strong but like just sort of put off balance a little bit by 
things in the culture, whether it's a movie and like a franker version of sexuality than you might be familiar with, whether it's. Or just like a franker version of intimacy between two people of the yeah, same. Uh, or yeah. Like Sorry. just kind Carry of on. having to sit with uh, a, an artist of colors indictment of white culture that necessarily would yes. make, you know, a non-racist ally who is, you know, fully Black Lives Matter should make you uncomfortable. These, th This is some ugly, yes. painful stuff. So there's definitely something, you know, obviously there's something valuable about that part, but the speed with which cultural critics who belong to that sort of traditional quote-unquote like mainstream mindset the speed with which they will kind of drop a like a protective dome over stuff like this is is pretty amazing or just dismiss it and be like i you know i am announcing this mm -hmm. doesn't matter so in that sense well, and it even also if now aretha's hollering is not like orally for me she, you know, she is for me and I am for her. So, yeah. Well, and that brings me to the point of, right, this song may not be your aesthetic cup of tea, but then how great that there are songs like this that exist in all pop aesthetics. I remember that we had a great conversation about if When I Was a Boy by Jar Williams doing something very similar very different type of music. So yeah, I guess this is just a very shiny version of a very important type of song, which is to, if I may repeat back to you, what I'm hearing you say, the song that is intended to, and necessarily makes us uncomfortable because it provides power to the subjective experience of someone who is not always right. in the center. Well, but then Mark and Sarah talk about semiotics. I would also like to loop back to the point that I made earlier about my sense of like, not a, you know, two does not make a trend, but I don't think those two songs were the only times that Aretha was brought in to give something cred, but then was mm. also like a little bit packaged into Aretha TM so that her, I well, mean, her solo yeah. work, like, you know, that is very frank sexuality from a woman of color, but it's Aretha. So, you know. Well, and also, Aretha was being packaged much like Whitney Houston was in this time to sound like a mainstream. Her music was being made more white mainstream and the the raw edge or whatever the i don't know the the sound of more traditional r&b was being sanded off of her to make her more commercially viable to a mainstream suburban whatever audience but oh this is a great time i think to well, and read, as long as she got paid um, i'm with it quote but yeah i just wanted to sort of mention that yes. that it's like in the context of um like disruptive art it seemed like they were trying to like un disruptor her a little bit but yeah i think you're right that you think you're right they were trying to limit the exposure to her disruptive yeah like aretha in that sort of f fun hip way and not in the dangerous coming for you with a 
with a weapon way, which, I don't know. Why can't it be both? I know why I can't. Anyway, sorry. You had a quote to read us, I believe. But I think that this is an interesting uh, addition to this conversation. In 1991, speaking to the British magazine Q, Annie Lennox said the following about this song. Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves was a challenge to write a pop song that could be played on the radio, yet was a feminist anthem. I woke up one morning and wrote all the words. I had a vision of it and said to Dave Stewart, her partner in the Eurythmics, that this idea needs a fantastic woman to sing it with. I'd thought of Tina Turner and we contacted her, but she found the content too feminist. But Aretha wanted to do it, so we flew to Detroit. I got along all right with her, but we didn't have an immediate rapport. Aretha struck me as rather shy, a bit sad, a bit lonely. She had an entourage, which I thought a bit eccentric. I wasn't used to it. So, interesting. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there that I'm not qualified to unpack, but that's very, like, excessively gently put, I suspect, compared to what her reactions may have actually been. There were some, there are a lot of stories about Aretha Franklin, like demands to be paid in cash, will not fly, must be driven everywhere. I mean, and these are all reported in the New Yorker recently, which I, or like there was that thing when she performed at the Kennedy Center Honors recently and brought her purse and coat on stage with her. <laughs> I think Aretha, Aretha is uh, the goddess of soul, but is also rather uh, eccentric, I think. Oh, before I forget though. One of the reasons I love this song, Sarah, and it, I would be remiss if we didn't play this for the listeners. Um, one of the reasons that for me, Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves is an all-time classic. And I absolutely acknowledge that this is part of the gay aesthetic in me speaking out. But this is the very last thing that we hear in the song. Thank you. I'll get it myself. <laughs> and uh, can we just hear that one more time? Thank you. I'll get it myself. <laughs> And I have said recently, I hope, I hope that this was just a hot mic that Aretha had when she was at the coffee shop or something, and she just got tired of waiting, and she was just like, you know what, thank you, I'll get it myself, because (laughs) there are so many contexts in which I can, like, Aretha's at the car wash, and they're taking forever to bring her the new car smell uh, air freshener, so she's just like, thank you, I'll get it myself, and she goes and grabs one. There's just so many contexts in which, thank you, I'll get it myself, is the perfect thing to say. Uh, Yeah, no. I agree. And uh, it's what we all end up doing in the end in life. Oh, deep. Yeah, I try. Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, hosted by Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting, that's me, and edited by Sarah D. Bunting, that's also me. Do you need to talk to Mark and Sarah about song requests, ads, or birthday readings? Here's how. Email us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, tweet at us at talksongs, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mastass.podcast. And you can become a supporter and producer of this podcast at our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash mastass. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.